0: A video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study Class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 1015 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you're joining the Bible Study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible Study again today. Today we're taking a break from our study of Numbers to learn a little bit more about the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, remember? Remember? God gave Moses a pattern for this when he was on Mount Sinai. And then we're going to learn a little bit about a tent that David pitched for it when he was king of Israel, which would have been about a thousand years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's a very fascinating story. But I want us to start this story, this account, with an important event in the history of the early church. We read about it in the book of Acts. Somewhere between 17 and 19 years after Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, and rose again from the dead to prove that his death had been accepted and and had done what he came to do, and that was to conquer sin and death and hell and the grave and Satan. It became necessary for the early Christians to have an extremely important business meeting. They were struggling with an issue that was causing a lot of problems in the early church. We read about it in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas had just completed their first missionary journey. Many Gentiles had come to know Jesus, but there was a huge controversy festering inside the church. It had to do with the fact that so many Gentiles, non-Jews, were coming into the church, and there were some Jewish believers, and of course at first almost all the believers were Jewish, who felt that the Gentiles had to become Jews, that there's no way God would just work directly with Gentiles. just didn't make sense to them. He had to work through the Jews, they thought. So before these guys can become followers of Christ, and these were Jews who who knew Jesus had risen from the dead, they knew Jesus was God, but they were very confused about salvation. And they thought these Gentiles had to become Jews before they could possibly become Christians. So in verse 1, we find them arguing that you really can't be saved unless you're first circumcised. You've got to become a Jew first. Well, in verses 7 through 11, after a lot of debate, Peter argues that, look, we're saved only by grace, not by grace plus circumcision. Remember, Peter was the first one that God showed that he was reaching out to the Gentiles even before they became Jews when he sent him to Cornelius. Remember that episode, Acts chapter 10. So finally, in verse 13, after all the discussion is over, James, you remember James, he's the half-brother of Lord Jesus, same mother, different father, but he's the pastor at the Jerusalem church at this time, and he gives his decision. And you can find his decision, verses 19 and 20. And, of course, you know his decision. His decision was Gentiles don't have to become Jews. They don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. But in arriving at his decision... He quotes from an Old Testament prophecy. It's from the words of Amos, the prophet Amos. So let's read what James' response is. And we'll read it beginning in verse 13 of Acts chapter 15. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles. Of course, that was Cornelius. To take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. And now he's going to begin to quote from the prophet Amos. Verse 16. After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David. Which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, says the Lord, who does all these things, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And this prophecy is from chapter 9 of the book of Amos. Amos chapter 9, verse 11. Amos was an Old Testament prophet, of course, who prophesied before the destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel. You remember the northern kingdom was taken away captive and pretty much destroyed by Assyria in 722 B.C. Most of the scholars who study Amos say that his book was probably written around 760 B.C. So James is quoting a prophecy that God had given Amos about 800 years before this meeting that James is leading there in the city of Jerusalem. And this is what Amos wrote, verse 11. In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof and I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen, that word could be translated Gentiles, which are called by my name, says the Lord who does this. It's interesting, he's talking about Gentiles called by his name. Amos prophesies this. So in Acts 15, 16, God tells us he will rebuild the tabernacle of David, that he will set it up or restore it. Restore. Some translations translate this restore. And the word restore is a fascinating word when you study how it's used in the Bible. You will find that when God speaks of restoring something, Quite frequently, he means, I'm not just going to put it back like it was. I'm going to put it back better than it was. It's going to be greater. It's going to be more awesome than before. Let me give you some examples. In the prophets, in the Old Testament prophets, they often prophesy the millennium when Jesus comes back and reigns on earth. And they often compare it to a restored Garden of Eden. You can find that in Isaiah and Ezekiel. But we know it will be much better than the Garden of Eden. I mean, the Garden of Eden sounds wonderful, doesn't it? But in the, in the millennium, when Jesus sets up his kingdom, Satan won't be able to get in at all. And we're going to have glorified bodies. It, it's going to be incredible. It's going to be wonderful. Much better than the Garden of Eden. When God allowed Satan to take away all that Job had. You remember the, the study of Job in, in the Old Testament book of Job. At the end of Job's affliction, you remember God restored back to Job what he had before, but it says not just what he had, he restored twice as much to him as he had before. It was much better, his situation at the end. You remember when Samson, God restored Samson's strength, you know, he he killed more Philistines in his death than all the Philistines he'd killed earlier in his life. Samson, of course, was not a faithful man for the most part, but God used him. And when God restored his strength, he restored it even greater than it had been before. In the Old Testament, if a man was found guilty of stealing, he had to restore what he stole. But it wasn't just what he stole. Remember the principle? Sometimes it was twice as much he had to restore, or sometimes four times as much, occasionally seven times as much. That's spelled out in Exodus 22 and Proverbs 6. You remember the Syrian Naaman who had leprosy? God healed him. Remember that episode? When his flesh was healed, it it was restored, but it wasn't just like he had Before he had leprosy, he says it was restored like the flesh of a little child, like like incredibly good, fresh skin. (laughs) So you get the idea. That's, That's kind of the way God does things. So whatever this tabernacle of David was, God says he's going to restore it or rebuild it. And if God follows the pattern that he usually seems to show us in the Bible, we suspect that means something even better and greater and more awesome than before. Now, we need to go back in history a little bit further to understand what James and Amos were talking about, okay? You remember, and we've studied this recently in our study of Exodus, around 1446 B.C., Exodus chapter 19, God called Moses up on Mount Sinai. Remember this? And while he was on Mount Sinai, God gave him the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, remember? But he also gave him something else. You remember what else he gave him? Can you remember? (laughs) Well, it gave him the pattern for the tabernacle while he was up there on Mount Sinai, including the Ark of the Covenant. Now we studied the tabernacle sometime back, and sometimes we'll call this tabernacle the tabernacle of Moses, not because it was Moses' idea, it was God's idea, but God gave it to Moses, and God used Moses to construct this tabernacle, gave him the vision of what it's supposed to be. We studied that a few weeks ago. God said the tabernacle was supposed to have three sections, the outer court, and then the holy place, only the priest could go in there, and then the holy of holies, or the most holy place, only the high priest, one time a year. And in that holy of holies, which was, of course, the day of atonement, in the holy of holies was the most sacred item in all of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a box. It was about four feet long, a foot and a half high, a foot and a half deep overlaid with pure gold. Within that box, God told Moses, put the tablets of stone with the Ten Commandments. On top of the box was a lid of pure gold, solid gold called the mercy seat. And the golden cherubim at either end facing one another with the faces toward the mercy seat. Their wings arched up over the mercy seat, touched at the center. And in Exodus 25, 22, God said these very important words. He said, there at the mercy seat, there I will meet with you. And I will commune with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all the things which I will give you in commandment unto the children of Israel. Do you hear what God's saying? God's saying, I'm choosing to establish my presence as far as you're concerned, Moses, on earth. Now we know God can't be located in one place, God fills heaven and earth. But He chose to speak and communicate to Moses from this place the mercy seat atop the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubim. God said, that's where I'm going to speak to you. That's where you're going to find me. That's where you're going to hear from me. Well, God led Israel through the wilderness. About 40 years later, this would have been about 1406 B.C., he's ready for Joshua to lead them into the promised land. And he had already given Moses instructions for this, but they did it right. He instructed the consecrated Levites to take these special staves, they were overlaid with gold also, made for the purpose of carrying the ark, insert those poles, those staves, through the special rings on the ark, and then they carried the ark on the shoulders of these consecrated priests down into the swollen Jordan River, it was flood stage, and they walked down into the Jordan River and immediately the waters drew back and with the ark of God, the very presence of God on earth, right there in the riverbed... (laughs) The waters drawing back, Israel crossed over into the promised land. Finally, in Joshua 18, we read that the tabernacle was pitched at a place called Shiloh. And the ark was placed in the Holy of Holies as a resting place there in the promised land. Here's Shiloh on a map. It's about 25 miles north of Jerusalem. And for the next 300 years, and this goes right through the period of Judges, The ark mainly remained right there in the tabernacle at Shiloh. Now, it was moved from time to time. Remember, that tabernacle was portable. They carried it with them through the wilderness. And and sometimes it was at Bethel, so they they could move it. But most of the time, it was at Shiloh. Now, let's fast forward about 300 years to 1070 B.C. The period of Judges is about to come to an end. There was a man named Eli who was the high priest. He was very, very old. He had two sons named Hophni and Phinehas who were priests because they were sons of the high priest, but they were wicked, wicked young men. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 2 that these two young men flagrantly disobeyed God. We're not talking about trivial things. It was horrible, ugly, blatant sin, even to the point of committing sexual immorality with women servants of the tabernacle. Very disgusting men. So that sets the stage. In in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we find Israel at war with the Philistines. The the Philistines were a perennial enemy of the the Israelites. And in verse 2, we find that Israel has been badly defeated in battle and they're really, really depressed. So someone comes up with a bright idea, and it's the last part of verse 3. Let's fetch the ark. Let's fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh Unto us that when it comes among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. This was a horrible mistake. You see what they were trying to do? They were trying to use the ark as if it were a kind of magic box. They didn't have repentant spirits. They weren't looking to God in faith and trust, asking God for deliverance and help. They weren't looking to the Lord. They were looking to the ark. they were trying to use it like an amulet of some kind. And God, of course, will not be used that way. If we want to approach God and we want help from God, we don't take a magic box out. We repent. (laughs) We trust him. We come to him and and we seek his face in a repentant, humble way. He demands repentance. He demands godliness. He demands obedience. He wants us to trust him and follow him and let him be the Lord. (laughs) Now, guys, before we're too hard on those people, we've got to remember, there, there are many people today who kind of, maybe not consciously, maybe they're not thinking it through very well, but they're really trying to use church buildings and maybe church attendance the same way. You understand what I'm saying? If we just go to church, maybe we will solve all our problems. <laughs> well, the church can't deliver us anymore. The ark can deliver them. Only God can deliver his people. And he does it through his son. God the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only way. They were making a terrible mistake, and many people make the same mistake today. Now look at verses 4 and 5. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwells between the cherubim and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout. So the earth rang again. Now listen, guys, some shouting is really wonderful. God tells us there's a time to shout unto him with a voice of triumph and shout unto him with a voice of praise. And we probably don't shout unto God enough. We're a little bit intimidated about shouting these days, aren't we? But we've got to keep this in mind. Shouting in and of itself is not necessarily genuine praise. If it's genuine praise, it's coming from a repentant heart, a pure heart. Yeah, these people were shouting, all right, but it was all wrong. They were not shouting praise to God. <laughs> their shouting was probably more like the shouting that we hear when uh, your favorite team runs onto the football field and the stadium's full of fans screaming and shouting and excited that their football team is going to win this game. <laughs> That's their attitude right now. It has nothing to do with honoring God. Look at verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What means the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was coming to the camp, and the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God is coming to the camp. And they said, Woe unto us! There's not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us! Who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Now, they didn't really understand the true God very well, but they knew his reputation, and it was terrifying to them. But they strengthened themselves in spite of their terror, and someone calls them in verse 9 to be strong and quit yourselves like men, O you Philistines, that you be not servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought. And Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 footmen. And the ark of God was taken. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were slain. So now the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy item in all Israel, is no longer in the tabernacle of Moses at Shiloh. It's in Philistia. It's in Ashdod, the temple of Dagon. Eli, the high priest, at that point in time was really old. He was 98 years old. And when he heard what had happened, he simply fell off his seat, broke his neck, and died. Of course, Hophni and Phinehas were both killed, and when Phinehas's wife heard about it, she was pregnant at the time, the shock of the news of the deaths of Eli and Phinehas and Hophni and the loss of the ark put her into premature labor, and she gave birth to a boy, and she named him Ichabod, which means no glory. First Samuel chapter 4 verse 21, she named the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Israel could hardly imagine anything more shocking and horrifying than this. But you may remember this story if you've read it before. You, you remember the ark doesn't sit very well with the Philistines, and in chapter five, verses three and four, we find their god Dagon. You know they'd set the ark up in Dagon's temple, but Dagon, God just caused that idol to fall on its face and break off his head and break off his hands before the ark. And then in verse six, we read they had a terrible outbreak of tumors, and so the people of Ashdod decide, I don't think so. We don't need this. You know let's let's send this somewhere else. So they send it to another city of Philistia called Gath and when it got there they broke out with tumors as well and they said we don't want it here either so they sent it to Ekron the people of Ekron break out not not in tumors necessarily but in panic because they knew what had happened in Ashdod they knew what had happened in Gath and they're saying we don't want that thing so the Philistines decide this ark is a curse. So after seven months, they put it on a cart and, the, and God just uses those cows, supernaturally guides those cows, pulling that cart back to Israel. God's in charge of this thing. It's amazing. He's using some cows. It came to a town named Beth Shemesh. Here's Beth Shemesh on the map. And the people there got all excited, but... They're still not reverencing God like he intends for them to. They treat the ark very irreverently and casually, and God killed a bunch of them. The Bible says a great slaughter, chapter 6, verse 19. So in chapter 7, the men of Kiriath-Yerim came and took it to the house of Abinadab. Here it is on the map. By the way, there are three Abinadabs in the Bible. You may see them, and, and they're different men. There was, of course, this one, who's the man who took care of the ark He took it into his home. There was another one who was one of David's older brothers, a son of Jesse. And then there was a third Abinadab who was a son of Saul, brother of Jonathan, who was killed with Saul and Jonathan by the Philistines later on. So this is not David's brother and it's not Jonathan's brother. This is a different Abinadab. And it stayed there in Abinadab's house for many years, probably about 70 years altogether. So the Israelites are not really sure of what to do with this either. They're a little bit scared now. I mean, a bunch of them have been killed, so they're all kind of terrified. Remember now, the tabernacle is still at Shiloh, up north of Jerusalem. And the tabernacle worship's still going on there at Shiloh, just as it had been before. They're offering sacrifices and offerings there at Shiloh. But the ark's not there. And God said he'd come to establish his presence on earth, at that time, at the mercy seat over the ark. But the place where God established his presence with the people, the mercy seat over the ark, it's not at Shiloh. It's not in the most holy place. It's down at Abinadab's house. Isn't that strange? I think there may be a warning here for us too. It's possible even today for us to have the outward symbols, the external symbols of, of true worship when it's, God's not even there. It really is. Well, during this time, Israel demands a king, and they get one, King Saul. God gives them the kind of man they wanted. Turned out to be a failure. He was a compromiser. He was a man pleaser. He did not reverence the commands of God. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 13, we find that during Saul's days, Israel did not seek after the ark which means they really didn't seek after God. God had said, I'm making my presence tied to the ark. They weren't sure they wanted him. After what happened to the Philistines, after what happened to Beth Shemesh, God seemed pretty dangerous to them. I think C.S. Lewis picked up on this concept of the nature of God that we need to understand and make sure we get it clear. Have you ever read the line, the Wish in the Wardrobe, the first book in the Chronicles of Narnia series? If you if you read it, you may remember there was a point in time when Mr. Beaver I don't don't go by the movie here. The movie made the Beaver Mr. And Mrs. Beaver look kind of cartoonish, shallow. The book gives you a deeper picture of their character. Anyway, uh, Mr. Beaver is taking Lucy and the Pevensies, you know the, these kids, these four kids that have gotten into Narnia, to to meet Aslan. Aslan, of course, is a type of Jesus, in C.S. Lewis is. Chronicles of Narnia, and she assumes, Lucy assumes that Aslan must be a man, and when she finds out, no, he's the great lion, she said, ooh, a lion, is he safe? (laughs) And Mr. Beaver said, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's not a tame lion, but he's good. (laughs) And I love that line, I love that picture. Because he's communicating God is very, very serious about sin, about disobedience. If we are not repentant, God is not safe, but he's good. We need to be careful how we define our words. There are many people that want to say, oh, God is good. God is love. And therefore, he's not that big a deal when it comes to my sin. He doesn't care that much. He'll overlook it. It's no big deal, but it is. And we need to remind people in ourselves, God is not safe. If I'm determined to hang on to my sin, do things my way, be self-centered, be in charge of my own life, God is dangerous to me. He's serious about it. The Israelites had some things they needed to learn about God. He's good, but he's not safe. The amazing thing is that Kiriath Urim was only about eight miles down the road from Jerusalem maybe 25 miles or so from Shiloh. The ark represents the presence of God. God's not very far away. He's not far from Jerusalem. He's not far from Shiloh. But I think this object lesson still carries through for us today. To many churches today, God's not there. but He's not far away. We could enjoy His presence if we just submit to His word and not try to do it our way if we'll obey Him. But many today are not sure they want God. They really don't want to seek Him. They're kind of comfortable with the way things are right now without God. If God really shows up, it often upsets our apple carts. And we're comfortable. We don't want our apple carts upset. It's a very sad place to be, but that's where they were. Saul was killed in battle in 1010 BC. The tribe of Judah immediately recognizes David as king. Of course, God had called Samuel to anoint David as king many years before this. But it takes a while for the whole nation to accept David. We don't have time to get into all that history. It's fascinating. But after about seven years, David becomes king of all Israel, the United Kingdom. And when David becomes king, remember how God described David? He said, this is a man after my own heart. David loved God. He trusted God. He loved God. He yearned for the presence of God. He sought after God. He was hungry for God. You see it in the Psalms. And David knows the presence of God is with the ark. That's just the way God decided to do it. So he says, we got to go get that ark. Look at 1 Chronicles 13, verse 1. David consulted with the commanders of thousands and of hundreds with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and from the Lord our God, let's send abroad to our brothers who remain in all the lands of Israel, as well as to the priests and Levites in the cities that have pasture lands, that they may be gathered to us. Then let's bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. All the assembly agreed to do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebanon to bring the ark of God from kiriath Yerim. And David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is to kiriath Yerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart uh oh bad decision let's read on from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ahio were driving the cart and David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might with song and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets now listen David had a good heart. He was a man after God's own heart. David loved God. David wanted to do the right thing, but in this case, he's acting wrongly, prematurely. You know what David did? He used his logic instead of listening to God. He came up with what seemed to him to be a good idea, but what he's really doing is using man's method of transporting the ark instead of God's method He put the ark on a brand new cart. That sounded like a noble thing to do. Brand new cart, just for the ark. Seemed like a good idea to David. The only problem with it, God had already told his people how to transport the ark. And he's serious about his commands. It was to be carried only on the shoulders of consecrated Levites in those staves. Well, as happens so often with men's methods, it seemed to work for a little while. And they get as far as the threshing floor of a place called Kidon. When the oxen stumbled and the ark almost fell off the cart. And Uzzah reached out to steady it. And God killed him right there on the spot. Verse 10. They're having to learn a hard lesson. And we have to learn the same thing, guys. God is serious about his commands. It's dangerous for us to say, God, I think I've got a better way. I think my way makes more sense than your way. I don't think you really meant what you said. (laughs) We'd better take the time to find out what God's way is and do it his way. Otherwise, we're headed for trouble. That was David's tragic mistake here. Well, David reacts to this. First, he's angry, verse 11. Then he's afraid, verse 12. So, (laughs) once again, what are we going to do here? And So, the ark is staying now in the home of a man named Obed-Edom, And it stays there for three months. That's in verse 14. During these three months, David gets into God's word. And he learns God's way to carry the ark. In chapter 15, verse 2, he says, Then David said, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites. For them has the Lord chosen to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. So he figured it out when he got into God's word. Look down at verse 11. And David called for Zadok, and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asaiah, and Joel, and Shemaiah, and Eliel, and Amenadab, and said unto them, You are the chief of the fathers of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, both you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel into the place that I have prepared for it. For because you did it not at the first, the Lord our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. We didn't look, they didn't seek him the right way. We tried to do it our way. Verse 14, so the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel, and the children of the Levites bore the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. And David spoke to the chief of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers with instruments of music, psalteries, and harps and cymbals, sounding by lifting up the voice with joy. So, on the shoulders of these consecrated priests, the ark is brought into Jerusalem amid great sounds of praise. Verse 28, Then, Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting, and with the sound of the cornet, and with trumpets, and with cymbals, making a noise with psalteries and harps. Now listen carefully. Don't, don't miss this whole picture. The tabernacle of Moses without the ark is not in Jerusalem. It had been in Shiloh. They have moved it at this particular time to a town called Gibeon, not far from Jerusalem, but it wasn't in Jerusalem. But the ark, the ark of the covenant, is now in a place called the city of David, Mount Zion. By the way, the city of David and Mount Zion mean the same thing. They're both part of the city of Jerusalem. And originally Mount Zion was and the city of David was in the southeast quadrant of Jerusalem. Nowadays the Jews will call Mount Zion the southwest quadrant, but in Bible days it was the southeast quadrant. 1 Chronicles 16 verse 1 so they brought the ark of God and they set it in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before God. So David pitched a tent or tabernacle on Mount Zion for the ark. And for 40 years during the reign of King David, the ark, God's presence, remained on Mount Zion in the tabernacle of David. And during those 40 years, a brand new type of worship was introduced and established among the israelites now remember the old mosaic sacrifices and rituals they're not gone they're still going on they're going on in gibeon at the tabernacle of moses but god's not there his presence at the tabernacle is at the ark of the covenant and for 40 years god is being worshipped on mount zion in jerusalem in the tabernacle of david In fact, in chapter 16, verses 37 through 40, we learn that David appointed Asaph. Do you remember Asaph? God used him to write several of the Psalms, I think about a dozen of them. But he appointed Asaph to minister before the ark in Zion. He's going to lead the worship there before the ark on Mount Zion. Zadok, the priest, he appointed to continue to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices there in Gibeon at the tabernacle of Moses. Let's read about it in 1 Chronicles 16. Verse 37, so he left there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord Asaph and his brethren to minister before the ark continually as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with their brethren, threescore and eight. Obed-Edom also, the son of Jaduthan and Hosah, to be porters. And Zadok, the priest, and his brethren, the priests, before the tabernacle of the Lord in the high place that was at Gibeon. He has got two different places, you see. To offer burnt offerings unto the Lord upon the altar of the burnt offering and continually morning and evening and to do according to all that's written in the law of the Lord which he commanded Israel. So they're following all the laws regarding the tabernacle of Moses while everybody's worshiping on Mount Zion at the ark and the tent that David pitched for it. But it's not meant to continue. Forty years later, after Solomon finished building the temple in Jerusalem, remember that's one of the first things he did after he became king after David's death, We read in 2nd Chronicles chapter 5 verse 2, then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel into Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. So it had been in the city of David in Zion all this time and now he's gone to get it and bring it up out of the city of David, which is at Zion, and he put it in the temple that he had built just north of the city of David, just north of Mount Zion on the Temple Mount and put it in the holy place there in the temple. So today we tend to use the word city of David and Mount Zion and Jerusalem almost as synonyms and they were I guess in the very early days but, but the city of David and Mount Zion, even though they do refer to the same place, at least in Bible times they certainly do, Jerusalem's a larger area, it covers more area than just the city of David or just Mount Zion. Originally, though, the city of David, Mount Zion, really was all there was to Jerusalem. And you can see it right here inside the red on that map. Notice Solomon's temple is just to the north there. See it On, on the temple mount. And as I said earlier, the Jews today refer to the southwest part of the city as Mount Zion. And so sometimes when you look at maps today, you may see new Mount Zion over in the western southwestern part and the old Mount Zion over in the southeastern part. But you can see the old city of David here outlined in black there on that map. So you get the picture. Mount Zion's part of Jerusalem, but there's more to Jerusalem than Mount Zion. But during those 40 years, the ark was not hidden behind the veil. This is important. God was approached directly. He was worshipped with praise. Many of the psalms were written and sang in his presence on Mount Zion. Originally, there was no singing at all at Moses' tabernacle. But when Solomon finished the temple, the ark was put back in the Holy of Holies and the tabernacle of David was ended. But about 200 years after all of this, God prophesied through a herdsman whose name happened to be Amos (laughs) that one day he would restore the tabernacle of David. And when he did that, he said Gentiles are going to be coming in. And then 800 years after that prophecy, james said god's doing what he said he would do he's restoring the tabernacle of david and so the gentiles are coming in too just like amos prophesied you see what god did during the reign of king david i think it's so thrilling he gave his people under the leadership of david a taste a picture a 40-year glimpse of new testament worship david a man after his own heart David, a man who hungered and thirsted for God. And while Old Testament worship was still going on in the arkless tabernacle of Moses at Gibeon, the ark was kept in the tabernacle of David and people were privileged to come there and worship and praise God in his very presence. You realize at at Mount Zion, there were no animal sacrifices. Now, they did offer some burnt offerings for dedication when it was first set up, but after that, they didn't offer animal sacrifices. They continued to offer animal sacrifices at Gibeon but not at Mount Zion. Here at Mount Zion, there were spiritual sacrifices. Psalm 27 says, therefore, I will offer in his tabernacle. He's talking about the tabernacle of David here. Sacrifices of joy. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises unto the Lord. That's the kind of sacrifices they were offering to God. Listen to Psalm 51. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth shall show forth your praise. You desire not sacrifice. He's talking about animal sacrifice. Else I would give it. You delight not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. That sounds like New Testament worship, doesn't it? God says, come to me with a broken spirit. Come to me with a repentant heart and worship me. The 100th Psalm, some of you memorized the 100th Psalm, beautiful little Psalm. gives us a picture of entering into God's presence with praise and thanksgiving. So you, hear, you see the picture here? Instead of bringing an animal to slay at the altar, when people came to Mount Zion to worship, they came with psalms, psalms of thanksgiving, songs of praise, shouts of joy. There was no veil. The ark was visible to anybody that came. At Gibeon, there was still a veil, hiding the Holy of Holies, but inside the Holy of Holies, there was no ark. At Moses' tabernacle in Gibeon, they were still going through the rituals. They were still doing all the rites. They were doing all the ceremonies. They were doing all the sacrifices. God just wasn't there. Up until now, there'd been no singers at all at Gibeon. After this, David did appoint a few singers to sing, even at the old tabernacle. It's interesting. He, it's like he felt sorry for them or something. We've got to have some singing down there, too. But on Mount Zion, I mean, singing and musical instruments were a major part of worship in Mount Zion. 1 Chronicles three five tells us there were 4,000 musicians. Can you picture that? With instruments for praising the Lord. And of course, in Moses' tabernacle, nobody had access to God's presence. Nobody could go look at that ark. Only one man, one time a year. 1 Chronicles 16 tells us that David appointed Levites, led by Asaph, to make music with musical instruments. And that included all kinds of musical instruments. Cymbals, trumpets, stringed instruments. They're singing, singing praises to the Lord at Mount Zion right there in front of the ark. Sounds like New Testament worship. And many of the psalms of high praise were written during this period of time right there before the presence of the Lord on Mount Zion. There are 38 references to Zion in the psalms, and many of them refer to God's presence there on Mount Zion. And as I said earlier, Asaph, remember Asaph, the man David appointed to lead the praise at the ark of Zion. He wrote a bunch of the psalms himself, at least 12 of them. Now, when we read these references in Psalms to Mount Zion or to his holy mountain or to the tent of God, these words take on new meaning. We understand a little bit more what's going on here. Psalm 47 says there was hand clapping going on there. Psalm 149 and 150 tells us there was dancing before the Lord there. There was no altar of incense there, of course. That was down at Moses' tabernacle. There was no evening sacrifice at the tabernacle of David. In their place, they were lifting their hands and praying, just like we do today. You see that in Psalm 134. Now, according to Acts 15, the tabernacle of David is restored. And we no longer offer incense or evening sacrifice at the tabernacle of Moses, of course, but we do worship a whole lot like they did at the tabernacle of David. Look up. You remember what Paul wrote Timothy? He said, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. That's the way they were worshiping on Mount Zion. In the tabernacle of Moses, remember, only the high priest could approach God's presence once a year on the Day of Atonement. In the tabernacle of David, anybody could draw near, even the Gentiles. And some of the Psalms make this clear. Psalm 86 says, All the nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, shall glorify your name. That includes Gentiles, not just Jews. Psalm 100, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord who, not just Jews, all ye lands, Gentiles included. When David died, Solomon became king. The ark was returned to the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple, the forty years of New Testament type worship, including the Gentiles that had been going on during the reign of King David, came to a stop. Two hundred years later, Amos said it's going to be restored someday. Then Jesus came, died on the cross for Jews and Gentiles, rose again, ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, established a church, and restored the worship of the tabernacle of David. In Hebrews chapter 12, in our New Testament, God says, you've not come to Mount Zionai, You've come to Mount Zion. And all of a sudden, this makes more sense too. Look at this, verse 18. You've not come to the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire nor into blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the sound of words, which voice they that heard entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. He's talking about what happened when they first approached Mount Sinai and God made his presence known at Mount Sinai just before he gave Moses the law and the pattern for the tabernacle. Verse 20: For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Verse 22, but you are come to Mount Zion and into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. God says, in effect, you've not come to Mount Sinai, tabernacle of Moses. You come where? To Mount Zion, the tabernacle of David's restored. God's available. All of us, not just Jews. I'm not a Jew. You're probably not a Jew. Aren't you thankful? We Gentiles can come too. We can draw near with sacrifices of joy and praise and worship at Mount Zion. And I think at this point, maybe we begin to understand a little bit better, maybe with some fresh insight, why the Psalms have always been so precious to the church. If you think about it, in the Old Testament, probably the most precious part of the Old Testament to many, many, many Christians through the centuries have been the Psalms. They still are, aren't they? They're precious. Why? They're written for worship at Mount Zion, not for the tabernacle of Moses. They're written to help us in the the church age now, when the tabernacle of David's restored. They help us worship God. They help, help us worship him in spirit and in truth, like Jesus said, we're supposed to worship him. Now, there's still people today who are not worshiping at Mount Zion, at the tabernacle of David. They're still worshiping at Gibeon. Symbolically, you know, metaphorically, their worship is lifeless. You know what I mean? It's empty. It's a ritual. There's no joy there. There's no heart there. They're not really excited about God. They're just going through the motions, hoping that God will be happy if they go through the motions. But at Mount Zion, there's this hearts on fire kind of praise. You know what I mean? People are excited about God. They're singing. They're rejoicing. They're giving thanks before the presence of God. And we need to ask ourselves, where are we worshiping? Am I worshiping in Mount Zion or am I just going through the motions at Gibeon? (laughs) Am I truly experiencing the presence of God when I worship him or am I just going through the motions? You remember how David worshiped? You can see this many places, not just in the Psalms, but in, in the accounts of David and Samuel. David worshiped with all his heart. You see that over and over. He worshiped with all his might before the Lord at Mount Zion. He danced. He sang, he lifted up his hands, he shouted praise to God, he put his energy into his worship. We need to learn to do that, and Satan's going to fight you all the way. He's going to try to resist, he's going to try to get you to worry so much about what people will say or think that you won't really worship God like they did at Mount Zion. And I think we need to be praying, God, I want you to be the heart of my worship. I want to worship you with my whole heart and with all my energy, just like David worshiped you on Mount Zion. I want to worship you in spirit and truth. I don't want to be worried so much about what people think. I think we need to thank God that he's taught us this by teaching us about Mount Zion and the tabernacle of David. Isn't it awesome? Yeah, let's learn to worship him well. Let's pray. Father, we are very, very weak. We thank you so much that you have revealed so much of this truth to us in your word. And Lord, you've shown us how excited David got about worshiping you. And you allowed that tabernacle of David to be set up so that your ark representing your presence could be approached by people of all nations. And they came with thousands of people making music to you with instruments and singing and shouting and lifting up their hands and worshiping you with fiery hearts. Lord, we have something to learn. You know us, Lord. We're weak and we tend to be so concerned about what other people think or how we're going to look, or whether we're going to be respectable. <laughs> Lord, please help us. We, we want to worship you well. We're not interested in putting on a show for other people. We're not interested in just being demonstrative emotionally just to, just to act like we're worshiping. But Lord, we really do want to learn how to worship you well. So help us to learn to focus on you, to forget about ourselves, to worship you in spirit and truth, and to learn from what you've taught us about Mount Zion and the Tabernacle of David. Get glory through us and teach us what we need to learn. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.